It's uh, good to be here with believers, uh, worshipping our God, and I hope your hearts have already been warmed as we've come around the table and remembered Jesus, as we've sung songs to the indescribable God, the immortal, invisible God, as we've prayed, as we've read the Word. It really is a blessing to do all these things as as a family of God, so I hope that your hearts have been encouraged And I hope that they continue to be encouraged as we uh, come to the Word of God. So let's get into it. But before I do, let's talk about independence. Independence, it's a uh, virtue of our culture. It's something to be celebrated. And nobody does it better than the Americans. You know, they have a whole Independence Day. And you know, it's an awesome day, 4th of July... People get together, there's fireworks, there's you know, great fervour, celebrating freedom from the Brits. You know, Independence Day is really awesome. But what I'm here to posit to you this morning is that there's a greater virtue and something worth celebrating even more, and that is dependence. And I know we're not going to start any Dependence Day traditions, but dependence is incredibly important, especially and primarily when it's dependence on God. And it's very important for our culture as well, though we don't have Independence Day here, our culture is still very pro-independence. You know, we love it hearing those rags-to-riches stories. You know, someone's born poor, but then through sheer hard work and dogged determination, they finally make it, and they make a lot of money as well. And it's all down to their independence. And such stories, you know, resonate with us and inspire us. And yet, stories of those who have wealth and sacrifice it to go serve God in missions may not resonate with us in in quite the same way. But they certainly should. And Jesus has some words for us this morning to remind us of his economy and how valuable it is to depend on God. And so that in mind, I'll ask you to get your Bibles out, and I hope that you do have them. If you don't, either have really good listening skills, or we do have Bibles at the back you can can use. Uh, But yeah, this inspired word of God, and we're going to look in the book of Mark, And hear the words of Jesus. And so what I'd like to do this morning is hear about how we can depend on God by looking at three different encounters. And in chapter 10, we're going to be reading from verses 13 to 31 throughout this morning. And in these verses, there are three different encounters. Jesus is going to encounter some little children, he's going to encounter a man, and he's going to encounter his disciples. And during each encounter, he's going to point to an attribute of God that should cause us to depend on him. Uh, So without further ado, uh, let's get into the first section, and that's in verses 13 to 16. Read along with me, please. And they were bringing children to him, that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant, and said to them, Let the little children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. From this first encounter, we can learn to depend on God who loves children. Depend on God who loves children. And having simply read those short verses, we can certainly conclude that God loves children. Now Jesus is the very embodiment of God, He's the Son of God, he's God himself. And you look at the actions of Jesus here, and they speak very highly of children, showing God's love. 
You know, just look at the, the start of the story compared to how it ends. And in verse 13, you have this, this problem or, or dilemma, if you will, that these parents are hopeful. These parents are bringing their children, and what are they hoping for? Well, they're hoping, if you read in verse 13, that Jesus might touch them. The symbolism being um, that he might lay his hands on them and give them a blessing. And this was quite a common thing for parents back in um, this time to do. You know, they'd seek out the local rabbi, and the local rabbi would, would bless the child, and it'd be a really significant moment. And I think, you know, it'd be something akin to, you know, when my son was born, I kind of handed him over to Jeff for a moment, and Jeff prayed for him, and, you know, having our pastor pray for our son was, you know, it was a meaningful moment. And so the people are hoping for something like that with Jesus, and they, they come up to him and bring these children, hoping for this laying of hands and this blessing. And how does Jesus respond? Well, skip to verse 16. And he does just that. He took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. And so Jesus is doing exactly what these parents asked for. And that's awesome. But I hope you also notice there that he took them in his arms. So Jesus embraced these kids. He gave them a hug. And that mental picture speaks volumes of the love that God has for children. Jesus specifically made the time, gave the parents what they wanted, and gave over and, abund over and in abundance of that. And that speaks so highly of God's love for children. It's also seen in the two rebukes. So we saw at the end of verse 13 there that the disciples were rebuking these parents. And I can just imagine what they'd be saying. You know, Jesus, don't you have better things to do? You know, we're in the middle of this great discourse about divorce. Can't we continue talking about adult things? You know, don't we have somewhere to go? Don't we have more important things to do? You know, it's very easy to think what the disciples might have said. And I don't want to be too hard on them because, you know, I've read the end of the story, so I know how it goes. But nevertheless, here they are rebuking these parents. But what does Jesus do? He rebukes them. You know, when there's truth to be told, Jesus isn't shy to let it be known. And so he says, no, let the little children come. Do not hinder them. You know, he's saying it in the negative and the positive. He's saying, let them come and do not hinder them. He's making it crystal clear that there's a place for children in the arms of God. God loves children. And this message he's communicating to his disciples. Again, you get to verse 15, and Jesus is really shifting things. And he's saying, you know, in verse 15, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. He's saying that children are to be an example to us. You know, they're not to be ignored, they're not to be looked down upon, they're to be looked up to, because their faith is that that pleases God. These children are not to be stopped, but they're to be copied, because their faith is precious in the sight of God. And so in this short little encounter, we have crystal clear evidence of the love that God has for children. And I bring that to our attention because I think when you recognize how much God loves children, it stirs your heart to appreciate our God. When we see Jesus here, you know, letting these kids come, making time for them, blessing them, embracing them, what we see is God himself, you know, the one who imagined the sun and gives source to its light, making time for children. And if that doesn't cause you uh, to have humbleness of heart, an appreciation for the compassion of our God, then there's probably something wrong with, with your heart. God loves children. You see, the danger that we can learn from this passage is there's a, a really negative thinking, a really sinful way of thinking 
that we can fall into the trap of having in our brains. And the disciples certainly had this sinful thinking. And the thinking is just thus. Adults are more important than children. And you know, we're mostly all adults here, it's very easy to have this thinking, but it is incredibly dangerous. And it's sinful for two main reasons. One, if you have this thought in your head that adults are more important than children, then your whole life is going to be geared towards um, you know, respecting adults and showing them a proper place and pointing Jesus out to them, but you will be hindering the children from seeing Jesus. If you don't have them as a, at a place of importance, you will ignore them and they will not be shown Jesus as clearly as they ought to. And secondly, if you consider that adults are more important than children, what you're doing is you're having a group of people beneath you. And any time you do that, with any group of people, but in this case children, you're going to be puffing up your own sense of pride. And you're going to say, I've lived a few more years, I'm a fair bit more mature, I've got it together, I'm okay. And such thinking is going to lend to independence and relying on yourself and not relying on God. And so Jesus is correcting that thinking in the disciples. And because it's recorded here, he's going to correct that thinking in all of us as well and make sure that we recognise that children and adults are of equal worth before God. Or if you want to think of the flip side, adults are no more important than children. Just because we've lived more years and experienced more of God's grace, hopefully, that doesn't mean that God has an extra special place for us. He's holding children up as an example here. And what that does is it drives us to our knees, it helps us to appreciate how good God is, it keeps us humble, and it just shows us that God's grace can go to anyone and boy, are we grateful to be a part of that. God loves children. That should cause us to depend on him. I don't want to move on to the next section just yet though because there's a really cool application in verse 15. I'll read it out again. Verse 15, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And so through this passage, God is saying that God loves children, but there's also an application for our own hearts, and that is to have childlike faith, to depend on God like a child. Now, before I explore that idea further, what I'd like to do is just remind you that we have opened up to the middle of the book of Mark. And so there's been some themes and ideas that have been going on before this chapter. One of the prominent themes in the book of Mark is that of discipleship comes up over and over again. And by discipleship, I mean this, the cost of following Jesus every single day, day after day. So there's this ongoing relationship at a cost idea. And that's also being mentioned here. And I'd just like to draw your attention to some of the verbs used in conjunction with the phrase kingdom of God. So at the end of verse 14, it says, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. And so we have this idea that the kingdom of God is something that can be owned. And then in verse 15, we have um, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God. So you can, you can get the kingdom of God. You can inherit it. And towards the end of verse 15, it says, shall not enter it. So the kingdom of God is a, a physical thing you can go into or a, an entity that you can step in. Suffice to say that all these different ideas are pointing at more than just a moment in time of salvation. All these ideas are pointing at the journey that a Christian goes on during their life with Christ. You see, what God is really saying here is have faith like a child, but have faith like a child every single day. 
depend on God like a child every single day. And this is an incredibly important message for us. You know what? I have a child now, and I recognize that he is very dependent. You know, he depends on Jenna and myself to make sure he gets his meals, uh, even goes to sleep at the appropriate times, you know, for stimulation, otherwise he gets bored. He's very dependent. And he's been dependent for quite some time and will continue to be so. He's not going to get up tomorrow, climb out of his cot, go to the kitchen, pour himself some cereal. Right? He's, he's still dependent. That's the same idea here. This is not so much about just conversion, where you must depend on God to be saved, though you must. This is about every single day of your life. The cost of following God is that you must depend on Him like a child continuously. And so that's the message he's communicating here. Childlike faith. I do find it interesting, and I'm sure the people of the day did, that Jesus is showing these children to be an example. You know, even this morning we had Bill um, during uh, communion rightly saying that children imitate us. And here Jesus is saying, imitate these children. Have the same faith that they do. And what kind of faith does a child have? Well, simply put, a child has simple faith. I know something of this because, by God's grace, I was saved as a child. And so I've, I've had this childlike faith. And I remember one time I was writing a letter to the Australian cricket team, or a member of the Australian cricket team. And I was just writing along, um, Hi there, uh, my name is Geordie Burgess. I live at 407 Chester Street, as you tend to do when you're a kid. And I was writing along, and then in the last paragraph I put, uh, Do you know Jesus? You need to know Jesus if you want to um, have eternal life. Um, yeah, make sure you ask him into your heart and you can get to heaven. Something like that. And you know, to this day, I'm, I'm still quite happy I did that because I had childlike logic and childlike faith. You know, Jesus is the most important thing, therefore he should be mentioned. And so there's this simplicity to childlike faith that Jesus is trying to draw our attention to. And I think it's quite poignant that he does that because as adults, we're very good at complicating things. And we have you know, jobs and there's bills that come and we experience relationships and see the ugly side a lot more. And, you know, there's all sorts of things that go on in our life that are complicated. But our faith in God should not be one of them. God is good. Have faith in him. Depend on him. That's the, that's the message. That's the story. Like a child. Okay? And so Jesus is saying this and we just need to make sure that we're not too clever for the message. You know, as adults, we need to go back to depending on God like a child. He's our father and, and we need him. And it's one of these weird things that we want to become more mature as Christians, but the odd thing about being more mature is the more mature you get, it's not so much about doing all this extra stuff and showing off your maturity, it's recognizing your own need of God. And the more we go along in our Christian life, the more we should recognize, whoa, I'm a sinner, I need God so much, God help me. And God uses that. He works through that. And so there's this weird sort of reverse. We want to mature, but we want to become like children. And it's um, a danger I fall into, and I think it's quite easy for us to do, in that whenever you read the Scriptures or, or hear a sermon, or preach a sermon in my case, it's very easy to say, you know, brothers and sisters, here's a list of things we should be doing. And, you know...
before him and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honour your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. So in the first section, we learnt to depend on God who loves children. Here we learn to depend on God who alone is good. Depend on God who alone is good. It's quite a simple encounter. We have a man, we have Jesus, they have a dialogue, there's back and forth, so let's just work our way through it. And we look at verse 17, and if there's one thing we can conclude from verse 17, it's that this man is genuine. Okay? He genuinely wants to be saved. You know, he's, he's fair dinkum. Why else would he run up to Jesus as Jesus is about to embark on his next journey? Why else would he kneel before Jesus? And why else would he ask this excellent teacher with great words, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? This man is genuine. This man is also asking an excellent question. Okay, there's nothing wrong with that question he asked. I would love for people in my life to ask this question more often so that I can point them to God. And I hope you have the same desire. You know, it's a great thing when someone says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And so this, this man has you know, the right attitude and he has the right question but as we find out, he definitely has the wrong expectations. See, this man, like many of us, I think like the natural state of people, this man is expecting a bunch of works. He's expecting Jesus to say, if you do X and Y and Z, you'll be saved. And this is a very natural thing for people to think. You need look no further than the false religions of our world. You know, Judaism, keep the Torah and you'll get eternal life. Or Islam, you know, obey the Hadith and the words of Muhammad and you'll get 70 virgins. Uh, even, you know, um, Buddhism is all about doing good works in this life so that your next life will be a, a more peaceful one. All these religions, and sad to say Christianity can be tainted with this, but all these false religions are about if you do these works, you'll get salvation. It's a natural expectation of people. And when we're witnessing, we do well to think about their expectations. People naturally have this, I must do some works to get saved, expectation. So we need to smash that. And when people come and we're witnessing to them, we've got to point to God. Got to point to God's grace and say, depend on him. And Jesus is going to do that, but it's quite subtle. So let's figure out what Jesus is saying. So Jesus responds in verse 18, and he says, why do you call me good? Why do you call me good? No one is good except God. This is a very interesting thing to say because as people who understand the Bible, we know 
that God is good. And we know that Jesus is God. So we know that Jesus is good. And if Jesus is good, why is he questioning this man about it? And the answer, I believe, is in a bit of a test. See, what Jesus is saying here is, you just called me good teacher. Do you realize what you've just done? You've called me perfect. And if you're calling me perfect, you're calling me God. Now, is that really what you meant to do, call me God? Or are you just being polite like you would be to any local rabbi? And so Jesus is putting this test to the man. Jesus is also establishing a key truth here. No one is good except God alone. And I love Jesus because often he keeps it very simple. And this is one of those times. No one is good except God alone. You you don't need me to explain that to you. You you are bad and you are bad and you are bad and you are bad and I am bad and we are all bad. But God is good. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. God is good. Simple truth. Hopefully we can get it. Now Jesus, in verse 18, plays the game a little bit. Remember, this man's kind of expecting a list of works. And so in verse 18, Jesus gives these commandments. And you may have noticed they're quite similar to the uh, Ten Commandments. There's six of the Ten Commandments from the ones God gave to Moses back in uh, Exodus. Uh, with the exception, I think, do not defraud is in there instead of do not covet. Um, but both have to do with respecting the property of others. And this man may have been defrauding a bit, so Jesus mentions it. Nevertheless, Jesus mentions these commandments. And he's kind of putting a test to the man. And let's see how the man responds. The man responds, verse 20, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. Bum-bum. This man has failed the tests quite badly. Let's start with the obvious one. He says, all these I have kept from my youth. Excuse me. All these I have kept from my youth. So he's basically saying, I'm good. I've got it. I'm okay. I've got a great record. Ever since I was a kid, 100% completion, I'm good. Yes! Thinking I'm going to get to heaven because he's kept these commandments in his own eyes. He didn't get the clear truth that Jesus said, no one is good except God alone. He's really failed on the no one is good bit. He's, He's claiming to be good. But what's also interesting in his response is how he addresses Jesus. You'll notice he says, teacher, all these things I've kept from my youth. He's dropped the good. So not only has he you know, said, I am good, he's also stopped addressing Jesus as good and therefore almost admitting, oh, I probably don't want to call you God because you know, there's only one God, I'll call you Rabbi. So not only has he failed to recognize his sinfulness, he's failed to recognize Jesus' deity. He's failed to recognize Jesus as God. And so he's failed both of these tests that Jesus has put to him. He hasn't got it at all. So what's Jesus going to do? Well, awesome, verse 21, Jesus loves him. He looks at him and loves him. And that's a detail that Mark adds that's just a a beautiful thing. This is our God. This is Jesus. He sees sinners. He sees the confused. He sees those who think they're right when they're not, and he loves them. And there's a real lesson to learn from that and a worship to give to God because of that. And then Jesus, well, before I say what Jesus says, let me say what I would, would have said because I'm not Jesus, but I would have said something like, surely, you've got to have faith alone, um, by grace alone, in Christ alone, you need to depend on God. I kind of would have just just said that. That's kind of my go-to thing. But Jesus doesn't say that, because I think Jesus knew the heart of the man, so he knew the appropriate way to get to him. And so what Jesus says here, we'll read it out. It's here in verse 21. You lack one thing, go sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, 
and come follow me. And I'll admit, I was a bit confused when I first saw this, because I thought, Jesus, surely this is the time that you say you need to be saved by faith through grace and kind of steer away from the works thing because he's listing a whole bunch of works here and his whole point is that no one is good except God. And so I had to think about this for a fair while and I did and um, there's a few things I concluded. Number one, if this man was to obey this commandment, okay, let's just say he did go and he sold everything he had and he gave it to the poor and then he started a whole new life of following Jesus like one of his disciples. I'm going to say, if that man actually did that, he would have been saved. There's no way anyone could do all that without God regenerating their heart first. So there's a truth in that, if this man had done these works, he would have been saved. The works wouldn't have saved him, but there's no way he would have done these works without being saved. Secondly, Jesus is also highlighting the discipleship theme that's so prominent in Mark. He's saying... You know, you have to follow me. If the man does this, it's going to impact his life such that every day he has to depend on God. And that's the message Jesus wants to be making clear. Depend on God, who alone is good. And lastly, what Jesus is doing here is he needs to knock down this man's false sense of pride and false sense of accomplishment. This man reckons he's kept six of these commandments perfectly since his youth. So what does Jesus do? He gives him a doozy commandment. He says, you've kept all these, try this one. Okay? And what Jesus does, and he does it successfully, is identify the man's sin. And the man recognizes that, right? He walks away sad. Why does he walk away sad? Because now he realizes he's not good enough to get into heaven. The standard is too high. He thought he was good enough. Jesus showed him nothing short of perfection is good enough. And since no one is good, nothing short of depending on God who alone is good, is good enough. And so this man actually got it, but he was sad and he was torn. He now recognises that he's not perfect and he has a decision to make. And at this point, he just walks away and he sticks with his normal life where he thinks he's doing the right thing. He didn't get the message, depend on God who alone is good. At the very end of verse 22, and I haven't mentioned it because Mark hadn't mentioned it till the very end of verse 22, but at the very end he says this man had great possessions. And now that's going to become a prominent theme. It hasn't been a prominent theme until the very end of verse 22 when we say, oh, okay, there's something else at play that is stopping this man from wanting to follow Jesus as he ought. And we're going to explore that more in the next section as Jesus dissects it in the next encounter with his disciples. So read with me, please. We'll go from verses 23 to 31. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. And Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. And Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel, 
who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. So in this section, which was segued in beautifully before, we see we must depend on God who alone saves and provides. Depend on God who alone saves and provides. And so what we have here is Jesus talking to his disciples. The man has walked away, he's very sorrowful, but there's a lesson to be learned here and Jesus takes the opportunity to explain it. And he says there in verse 23, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Again, a pretty straightforward statement. However, an extremely countercultural statement because the disciples, like most people of the day, had a little bit of a misguided view of God. It was a misguided view that the rich were the best. The rich had favour with God and therefore they had lots of wealth because God had blessed them. And so if there's anyone who's going to find it easy to get into heaven, it's going to be the rich because they're obviously already doing the right thing and getting blessed. And this is kind of the way the disciples thought. And now Jesus comes along and says, it's going to be difficult for the the wealthy to enter heaven. And hence, the disciples are amazed. You know, that's their whole worldview kind of deconstructed by Jesus there. And they're amazed. And what does Jesus do? He says the same thing again. How difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Again, I don't need to overcomplicate things here. The eye of a needle. How easy is it for a camel to get through that? Not very easy, right? (laughs) Nigh impossible. So the point Jesus is making is crystal clear. It doesn't matter about your wealth. Your wealth isn't going to help you when it comes to the things of eternity. And this is just blowing the disciples' minds. You know, they're completely flabbergasted at these words which are rocking their worldview. And they're just like, whoa, whoa, Jesus. If, if the rich are the people that have it good with God and they're really blessed and God loves them and they are going to struggle to get into heaven, then, then who can get into heaven? Who can be saved? Right? And that's the question they ask. Who can be saved? And then Jesus gives the response which I think is the key verse in this whole passage. Okay? And he says, firstly, with man it is impossible. I'm just going to pause there and let that sink in. With man it is impossible. This is important for several reasons. Number one, things have completely escalated from the words of Jesus. It's gone from hard to it'd be easier for a camel to get through the eye of a needle to impossible. So just in case you were trying to reinterpret hard or easier for a camel to get through the eye of a needle, Jesus just says it outright. It's impossible. Okay? And what that does is say, wow, that's, uh, we need help. You, know, you can't go anywhere if it's impossible. You need, you need God. Secondly, it's also been generalized. We were starting with an object lesson on the dangers of wealth. It's difficult for the rich, the wealthy, to enter the kingdom of God. Here, he gives a general statement, just in case the poor were starting to feel pretty good about themselves. And he says, with man, it is impossible. Okay? So it doesn't matter if you're a billionaire or if you're broke, it is impossible to enter the kingdom of God on your own in your own strength. And so he's really giving this sobering truth, you know, this self-esteem reducing truth, that it's impossible for us to get to heaven. And we need to grasp that. You know, in the previous section, we saw that no one is good, 
No one's good enough to get to heaven. Now we see no one's rich enough to get to heaven. No one can get to heaven. With man, it is impossible. But not with God. For all things are possible with God. And isn't that wonderful news? And in the context, you know, he's responding to the question, he's clearly talking about salvation. You know, man can't do it, but God can do the impossible. The act of salvation is an impossible, miraculous act. People don't work their way into salvation. God miraculously changes their heart and they're saved and they follow him after that. You know, people don't earn their way to salvation through wealth. God miraculously intervenes. He does the impossible. And this is a really important lesson for us to learn, uh, for the disciples to learn. And we wish that the man that had already walked away had grasped this as well. With God, it is possible. He's the one who saves. He's the one who alone saves. Okay? There's no one on earth who can save you. I can't save you. you know? No one in this church. We could all get together. But even if we did that, we, we couldn't save you. you know? Even the Pope couldn't save you. There's no one. With man it is impossible, but with God it is possible. And so we have this call to depend on God who alone saves. And that's a challenge for any of us here who don't know the Lord. You don't need to look any further than God himself. And this is the beautiful message of Christianity. God can intervene in your heart and change you. Okay? And so you need to look to God and depend on him. For those of us who are saved, there's still application. Because, you know, I get a little bit uncomfortable when people say this, but, you know, I, I trusted in God, you know, and how I was saved. And true, but it just makes me uncomfortable because we should say, I trust in God. Right? Trusting in God isn't something you did and then you stopped doing. Because if you stopped doing it, I've got serious questions about whether you actually did. Trusting in God, depending on God, is something we do every day. Okay? Our salvation is secure, but it's secure because of God, and thus we continually depend on Him. And so there's this application for us to make sure we're not getting distracted. And of course, the background to all this is wealth. And just like in the day, so it is true today, wealth is very distracting. Okay, those of us who go to work, which is most of us, you're spending five days a week earning. And that is a good thing, but it's so easy to be distracted because you're spending all this time accumulating wealth. And the message of the world is, earn and spend, earn and spend, and you'll get happier the more you earn and the more you spend. And so, you know, don't quit your jobs, you've got to, you've got to earn. But as you earn, think about the cause of Christ. And so we've got to be those that have the mindset of depending on God, not depending on wealth, because God saves. And so what can we do? Well, I encourage us all to be generous. Okay? If, you, if you give your money away, that simple act, you know, to the poor, to the church, if you give it away, you're not depending on that money, and you're forcing yourself to depend more on God. And the Holy Spirit will lead you into how much to be generous with. And you know, you don't necessarily have to give away everything, like the man was challenged to, but I was reading in my preparation of some people who did that, who got convicted and sold everything they had and gave it to the poor and then just decided to follow Jesus afresh and see what happened. And, you know, it was, it was difficult, but boy, did they learn a lesson about depending on God because you, you can't help but depend on God if you have nothing else. And so the message is there for us. You know, there's this wealth. We must make sure we review it appropriately. Even, you know, when we pray for the offering in church, I think that's an excellent thing, and I, I hope we continue to do that. We want this money to be well spent for the furtherance of God's kingdom. But I challenge us all, myself included, 
when we get our paychecks. Let's pray, God, may this money that you've given us for a time be used for the furtherance of your kingdom. And this is the attitude we really should have because it's not our money. It's God's money. You know, so everything we have, we owe to God. And so we need to be those that recognise that. And if we recognise that, it'll help us to depend on God who alone saves. God saves, he also provides. And Peter's going to start an objection here in verse 28. And I, I cut him some slack. He says, see, we've left everything to follow you. And fair enough, because he has left everything to follow Jesus. So I, I think it's fair enough he pipes up here. You know, he's left his family, he, he's left his, his job, he doesn't you know, have somewhere necessarily to go every night because he's travelling all over Israel with Jesus. He's left a lot. And you know, we do well to recognise that. You know, these disciples, they stuff up a lot. But they got that right. They gave up everything to follow Jesus. And so Peter just, he needs some reassurance. And so Jesus gives him some reassurance. Jesus reminds him of the provision of God. And he does so by giving these, these two lists. And we read them earlier. But we have this first list of the things that people give up houses and brothers and sisters and mothers. And we have this second list of things that God will provide. Now what I want us to observe is the kind of bit in the middle there, start of verse 30. Who will not receive a hundredfold, okay, a hundredfold, hundred, like times a hundred, okay, so God's provision is abundance, times a hundred, um, now in this time. Okay, he does mention eternity later, but God provides in this time abundantly. Okay? And we need to understand this um, in an appropriate manner. I am not saying that those of you who gave a dollar this morning are going to get $100 tomorrow. That is not what Jesus is saying here. Okay? But he will provide for your needs. Now, people have sacrificed. Peter is one of them. He sacrificed houses. So what is Jesus saying? You will always have a place to rest your head in this life. Now, this is the God who cares about the sparrows. He cares about us. He'll provide for your needs. And of course, it's definitely worth mentioning that most of the things in these lists are family members. Because sometimes people have to you know, leave their family for the cause of Christ. You know, if they're missionaries or you know, if they're just called to go somewhere. Or sometimes families reject someone who becomes a Christian. Very common overseas, but also here. People are hostile to the gospel. You know, Satan's working all over. So sometimes people have to give up their families. What do they get? Well, they get the family of God. And in that light, it's, it's a beautiful thing and a convicting thing. Because it's, it's a beautiful thing because those that have had to leave their families for the cause of Christ get a new family of people that care for them, of people that love them, that can encourage them. But it's also convicting because we're a family here. We're a family of God. We're brothers and sisters. You know, we're, we're children of God. Are we being that blessing that God promised? You know, are we seeking out those that we can encourage and being a family, particularly to those who've had to forsake their family or for those who don't have Christians in their family? You know, we, we have this beautiful thing as a family of God, but it's also really important that we treat that seriously and genuinely care for one another as a family should and be that blessing that God is promising here. A couple of other cool observations from this section that shows us that God provides. Um, you'll notice the first list, the list of things that people sacrifice, is connected by the word or, brothers or sisters or mothers. And the second list is connected by the word and. 
brothers and sisters and mothers. And the point is, is much the same as the hundredfold. The point is, anything you give up, anything you give up for the cause of Christ will 100% definitely be worth it. Look at all this stuff. Okay? Look at all these blessings. Any sacrifice you make will definitely be worth it because God provides. And if we remind ourselves of that, it can help us depend on Him. Sometimes I'm, I'm not quite sure we fully grasp God provider. I know I certainly don't. Because if I fully understood that God will definitely provide for all my needs, I'm sure I'd be more generous. And so the challenge is for us to understand God more and more. When we recognize that He's the provider, we'll adjust our lives accordingly to help further His kingdom. Very, very briefly, the word persecution is mentioned. I love the way Jesus does it. He doesn't hide from it. It's a reality. He mentions the persecutions. But look how he does it. You make any sacrifice, you get all these blessings with persecutions, but eternal life to come. Okay? And that's a good way to view persecutions. They'll come, they're real, they hurt, no doubt, but we have all these blessings in Christ and we have eternity to look forward to. And a relationship with God, he will help us through those persecutions. Not the main point, but worth mentioning. And so we've learned to depend on God who alone saves and provides. And in wrapping up this morning, I'd just like to look at verse 31. Because I think Jesus wraps it up really, really well. He does everything really, really well. But he wraps it up really, really well. Verse 31. Many who are first will be last and the last first. Let's just think back over these encounters we've seen and apply this truth. We had the children. Okay, the children coming before Jesus. And the culture of the day says, these children, they're not worthwhile, they're the last. But Jesus says, no, they're the first. They have a faith that you should copy. Depend on God who loves children. Or we could look at the second encounter. This rich man comes to Jesus and wealth. Oh, isn't that a sign that the wealthy people love God? The wealthy people have favour with God? Aren't they the first? And Jesus says, oh, they're among the last. And this man walks away sad. He had great wealth. He didn't depend on God, who alone is good. And in this last section, we see Peter, representing the disciples, Peter who gave up his home, he gave up his family, who gave up his job to follow a homeless rabbi. The world would certainly consider him the last. But look at all these provisions that the God who saves offers him. And he's among the first. Depend on God, who saves and provides. And so in all these things, I hope my message has been clear. I hope that we can understand that it's, it's all about God. Okay? It's not so much about works we do. We need to restructure our lives and remind ourselves to depend on Him because we need to depend on Him. Whether you're a believer here, depend on Him every day. You know, your good works didn't get you saved. Your good works don't keep you saved. Your wealth didn't get you saved. Your wealth doesn't keep you saved. Depend on God. And for those of us who do not know Jesus, my message is the same. You can't get saved unless you depend on God for forgiveness of your sins and he'll enter your heart and you'll have eternal life and blessings untold. Thank you for listening this morning. Let's just close with a word of prayer and I'll ask you to stand as we, as we pray. Heavenly Father, uh, we just thank you that you are good we thank you that, Lord, you, you have this love for us, you have this love for children. We just thank you, God, that we can depend on you, that you are the author of our salvation, you provide everything we need. 
And so God, as we leave this morning, help us all to depend on you more, help us all to understand who you are better, to get to know you better, so that we'll continue to depend on you. And Lord, we pray this as needy people, remind us of our need, remind us of our sin, and may we be those who fully depend on you. And I pray all these things, asking for your strength for all of us, in Jesus' name. Amen.